Hello, welcome to Hospice Insights, the law and beyond, where we connect you to what matters in the ever-changing world of hospice and palliative care. Working together, tips for ensuring a compliant relationship between you and your hospice board. In this episode, Meg Pekarski is joined by her colleague, Stephanie Kaiser, for a rich conversation on what it means for a hospice board to carry out its fiduciary duties and how this relates to the role and responsibilities of hospice executives. Through counseling and training boards across the country, Stephanie has gained unique insights on the inner workings of boards and breaks down what good governance looks like in action. Stephanie debunks common misconceptions on what defines a good board and provides practical tips on how hospice executives can and should engage and inform their boards. We also discuss when boards and individual members can have liability and how to guard against such claims. Stephanie, welcome to the podcast. We're so glad that you could you could join us. Thanks for making the time. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And so, so Stephanie, um, you and I have worked together on on various board issues, and and you've just been uh, so helpful in in navigating what can be, you know, sometimes challenging situations. And so, I thought it would be great for our hospice listeners to to hear your perspective on things. And so, um, when we first met, it was pretty fascinating learning about your background and. And and so, because you have a lot of board experience and you've gotten it from a lot of different perspectives. So maybe you could share first with our listeners about, you know, who, who what kinds of boards have you worked with in the past and, and in what roles? Oh, sure. So I've been practicing law now about 21 years. And as part of my job, I have frequently reported to boards at hospital levels, at professional associations like a very similar to like state bar associations, but on the professional side, I've done it for dental associations. I've done it for um, smaller companies and corporations. I've also advised a lot of banking boards and financial institution boards. Mostly the advice that I give is getting the regulated industries like your hospital type boards or hospice type boards, persons to whom you have fiduciary duties and regulatory requirements that frankly oversee a lot of those. But then also, as I mentioned, some of the smaller boards as well for some of my smaller clients, I have to work with them. And you, you before coming to Hush Blackwell, you had worked in-house too, right? Yes. And so I was in-house for some period of time at post-merger from a couple of different clients or persons who came together. And in that post-merger world, we had a lot of kind of forward governance issues we wanted to work through to make it function as well as it possibly could between two entities coming together. So I spent a lot of time on the on the operational side, on the board side, as well as the executive management side. And I was a member of executive management during that period of time. Great. So, and, and I think that this is such a timely discussion because I think, and I expect a lot of our listeners will be not-for-profit hospices. And so um, their boards are oftentimes very large. And you and I have talked about, you know, what what's that sweet spot in terms of um, board membership. But I also think it, it's timely uh, because I think that in terms of you talk about regulated in- industries and, and healthcare and hospice in particular is... Um, 
a large area of focus by uh, government regulators and over probably the last 10 years or, or less, the federal OIG has come out with um, compliance guidance for boards and how boards really need to be engaged in um, compliance activities and be informed about what's going on. And so I think it it just brings to the forefront this whole concept of fiduciary duty and what does it mean to carry out that fiduciary duty. But, but um, uh, I think it would be maybe the first place we start here is what does fiduciary duty really mean? Like what what is encompassed in that sort of big, big but small word? Okay, so fiduciary duties, generally speaking, I like to limit it to the three key fiduciary duties that are under the common law, which means basically in all states throughout the country, you're going to have these common notions of what fiduciary duties are. And so all officers of a company and all directors, and when I say directors, I mean board members, you know, directors on a board. Sometimes people have, you know, executive members called directors, but when I say directors in this context, I'm talking about members of a board. So if you take your members of a board being your directors and you have officers of a company, they have what's called fiduciary duties under the common law, which are duties that they are owed because of the positions that they're entrusted with at the board level or at the officer or executive level. And those three duties are care, loyalty, and obedience. And generally speaking, the duty of care is kind of just like what it sounds. It's the duty to be careful, to be diligent, and to be prudent, to do things that an ordinarily reasonably prudent person would do under the same or similar circumstances. So I always like to tell people it's it's not magical. Care is just like it sounds, being diligent and prudent, acting when you're supposed to act, when you are supposed to act in the role that you're supposed to serve. Uh, the second of the ones that I like to reference are, is duty of loyalty. And uh, it, generally speaking, it's deemed to be the broadest and most comprehensive fiduciary duty. And for a long time, I kind of thought it was kind of against my thought process to call it the most comprehensive. But I think it, over the years, as I've worked through it, I think that that is right. And what the duty of loyalty means is basically putting your companies or your associations, your nonprofits, your boards, putting your company's interests ahead of your own personal interests or the interests of any other person, individual person, like even a family member or another board member or a particular employee at the company. It's putting that collective company's interest ahead of everyone else's and acting what's in its best interest to do. Um, there's lots of kind of permutations of that. But the reason why I think that one uniquely is considered the most comprehensive is because there are inherent duties within the duty of loyalty that I think get folded in there, which are good faith and fair dealing. So a lot of times if you hear some people describe fiduciary duties, they may say, well, it's really care, loyalty, obedience, and good faith and fair dealing. And so fair dealing and good faith are actually subsumed under the duty of loyalty as we, as we may kind of figure out today or discuss further today. But it's making sure you do things that you honestly believe are in the best interest of the company based on the information provided. That's loyalty. Um, and then the last one, I guess, of those three is going to be obedience. And to me, this is obviously very intuitive, much like prayer. Uh, it's obeying, obedience, being obedient to the governing documents of the company, um, being obedient to the applicable regulations and other laws applicable to that particular company or maybe even just the internal guidance of that company. And by guidance, I mean policies, procedures, charters, you know, things that have been developed within the company structure 
that you have to satisfy depending upon what your role is. So care, loyalty, and obedience are the three fiduciary duties that all officers and directors of any company, whether it's two people or 3,000 plus, those are the three fiduciary duties owed by those respective positions. And if I could add one little caveat, officers and directors are what the lump is of those two groups. But I often uh, talk to my folks, uh, whoever I advise or whenever I give trainings, what have you, that I like to consider mid-level management as well as being on the cusp of owing those fiduciary duties. Sometimes by regulation, they owe them. By the by the regulations themselves, they may impose fiduciary-like duties depending upon what the industry is and what information they're entrusted with. But also depending upon what the title of the mid-level manager is, if they are overseeing a department, if they have that kind of administrative oversight um, that they actually can determine hiring and firing and making important decisions that govern a unit, I often think that they're going to be brought into that fiduciary duty as well, even if they don't qualify as a quote-unquote officer or executive. So that's really helpful. And I think as as you're talking and I'm thinking of our executive executives can be officers of a company and and like that because I think that the intention is probably an overstatement, but something that's going to run through our conversation is what is the board's role and what is the executive's role? And so so can you sort of Explain that a little bit more as as both the executives may have fiduciary duty as, as well. How is that the same or different? I mean, practically and legally, how is that carried out? Sure. So the board, I always like to visualize a company as a triangle, um, you know, just a triangle. And at the top of that uh, triangle, you typically in a corporation, for example, or a nonprofit or what have you, you're going to have a board. And that board is responsible um, for creating the policies of the company and policies to me, and, and without getting too much in the weeds on this, policies are the things that are developed that, that gives the general scope of how that company is going to um, function. And so when it, how it's going to function on things such as conflicts of interest, how it's going to function on its succession planning, how it's going to function on its strategic businesses, capital markets, whatever it happens to be, how it's going to function on its giving, um, and so you have these kind of broad-based policies that may be either legally or regulatorily required or that are needed in order for the board to tell and set the tone for how the company is going to function. So if you envision that a board is at the top of the pyramid or at the top of that triangle, um, they also are responsible for, in addition to formulating policies and, and setting strategic and, and business uh, direction for that company, they're also responsible for the hiring and selection um, and oversight of the CEO or chief executive officer. Um, sometimes people don't have CEOs and they have a president or something like that. But whoever is the uppermost management member of that particular company organization, the board is generally responsible for overseeing that person. And then below that, of course, so now that you've gone below the top of the pyramid, you've got the board responsible for setting policy direction on how the company is generally going to function. Um, they also are responsible for the hiring and selection and oversight of the CEO or president depending upon the corporate structure. In those policies, what you should see is generally five or six main categories um, without getting, again, too much in the weeds on any one particular policy. Policies will have something like, what is the purpose and objective of this policy? It will then have an operating parameters section. And then down below, it's going to have things like, what are exceptions to this policy that the board would find acceptable? 
It's going to have what are the reporting requirements of this policy, which I think may be critical for part of our discussion today. And then it's also going to have or should have, assuming it's appropriate, um, it will give authority to management or to certain persons, whether it's a singular or plural, it will give authority for management to go out and develop procedures um, consistent with that policy. So policies are generally broader based statements that give some critical points of reference and some critical must-haves for the company, but then it delegates the responsibility for management generally or the CEO or some other particular member to develop procedures that will help implement that policy throughout the company as part of the day-to-day operations. So going back to the top, you've got board at the top because policy direction sets strategic business goals and direction. Tone at the top is a common phrase for board members and then they are responsible to the CEO. They delegate a lot of the day-to-day or all of the day-to-day to the CEO. So then you've got the next band in that triangle, which is going to be your executives or your officers, which are typically known as C-suite or people in that kind of vein, which are your chief executive officer, maybe an operations officer, a financial officer. People like that are going to be in that next C-suite. And the CEO in an organizational chart is typically going to be at the top or is at the top of the management um, organizational chart. And then below the CEO, we're going to have all these C-suite or individual officers and directors, directors within the company who oversee departments and things like that. So it is more the top triangle. Below that next band, you're going to have the executive, CEO, operations officer, financial officer. HR is in there sometimes as its own unit or under operations, for example. Something like that. Then you may have legal counsel or other kind of members, uh, depending upon how your units are broken up or how your divisions within your company uh, need to function, what separate units they need to have to make that work best. So I hear you say day-to-day operations. And so boards sort of setting the tone, but in terms of the executive role, even though everyone has the same fiduciary duties, Obviously, the executive is carrying out those or living those, so to speak, on a daily basis. And so, um, so I guess, and and we don't run into this at least uh, in the hospice arena all that often is where you have hospice board members who are getting very, very involved in day-to-day operations. In my experience, most of the time, board members are really, I'm going to meetings, you may have an executive committee meeting of the board or whatever, but I, I guess, how do you see that? And what what does the communication, what does good communication between I'm running this business day to day and I mean, getting into some real practical issues is when do you have an obligation as an executive to contact your board or board chair and like what rises to that level of when you should notify versus when you shouldn't and and whatnot. Because I think from the executive perspective, it's like I'm responsible for the day-to-day operations and and you know this is where maybe tension is the right word is I can handle this. And like, but when do you have an obligation to tell your board about certain things? And obviously there's a practical answer here too, of how do you keep good relationships with your board members, but there's probably a legal answer too. So what does that communication look like since we all have the same duties and, and I guess the board's duties or their ability to carry them out is sort of somewhat dependent on the executive 
telling them information or the board asking for it, but sometimes you don't know to ask if you are never informed. So to explore that dynamic a little bit and, and what you see as both good and bad there. So sure. So there's a lot there to cover and it is a healthy balance. And for well-functioning companies, you may not even see the, the tension, like you said, that, that is there. But I always like to say that a board really is at the uppermost pinnacle of responsibility, but they can't be there every day. It's not their job to be in the office every day. So they really do have to functionally delegate the day-to-day -day operations to the CEO, which means you should trust, a board should trust that person to make sure they've chosen wisely. Um, because they are, frankly, a lot of their fiduciary duty satisfaction is going to come through the CEO and that liaison relationship. There should be a healthy tension between because the CEO is going to be overseeing management to make sure other management members, executives and others below uh, executive level to make sure that they do what they're supposed to be doing. But to answer the bigger question, I'm going to go back up to the top. If you have policies in place, sometimes they're um, legally or regulatorily required. Um, and you have to have certain policies in place with certain reporting requirements that will tell you when management is required to report an event to the board and when the board is required to act. Sometimes that's just set by law and regulations are a part of that law. Other times, uh, again, the board setting strategic and succession kind of perspectives of the company, they will tell management under this policy, the board wants you to tell them whenever X, Y, or Z happens. And so that's what these policies help do is tell it's a communication and a set of guidance um, that either the laws require or that the company has determined through its board it requires that when certain events happen, this is when these reports have to get made. And other things just make sense by general operational function like financials. We all know that there are quarterly financial reports or you know quarterly events that happen in the audit world that need to get satisfied. And those things should be on a calendar for the board and should be reported in a systemic and, and, and frankly scheduled and structured way. So whether it's by law, internal guidance of the company like policies that will tell the CEO when they may have to know, or frankly, when it relates to safety and soundness or reputational risk, there are times when a CEO needs to be sensitive to that and know that it's appropriate for them not to hold that information in but to share that appropriate information up to the board if and as appropriate. And I don't know if this is, is a good time to bring it in, but your board is, let's say you have five members on a board and let's say the matter at issue to be reported is outside of a regularly scheduled meeting. It is something that cannot wait for a meeting, but the CEO has learned of an event that could threaten the reputation, like a lawsuit that's going to hit the, the news in a, in a couple of weeks. And it's going to be a pretty big deal. If something like that happens, you would expect the CEO to get on the telephone, whether it's based on policy or not, and call the board chair to another part of your question. Where's that good communication go? And unless the charter, which I haven't mentioned that yet, unless the charters require otherwise, typically your CEO is going to liaison directly with the board chair. And then that board chair is going to be responsible, you know, for communicating downward to the appropriate persons on a board. So if you have a five-person member of the board, let's say one of them is involved in the lawsuit, this hypothetical lawsuit we've discussed. If there's a board member, one of the five is a hypothetical member of a lawsuit, the board chair is not going to be communicating to that fifth board member who's quote-unquote interested about that lawsuit for their own benefit and frankly and hopefully pursuant to the guidance of the company on conflicts of interest policies. So generally, the board needs to make decisions of the disinterested persons on the board and of course, getting information from disinterested persons in management in the right way. 
So this can get a little weedy, but generally speaking, the board chair functions through its chair back to the CEO. If there is an audit-related issue and there's an audit committee in place, then it's an audit matter. Sometimes the reporting goes directly from CEO to audit committee chair or from a director of internal audit of the company to the audit committee chair to make sure that those liaison points are there. If you ever find yourself dealing with a structure of, oh gosh, I have a circumstance that isn't set forth in any of our policies or set forth in any of our guidance, and as a member of the executive management, you don't know who to call, then of course, one, put that down on a note that, you know, do, should we have guidance on this issue? But generally, you're going to default to what is the general corporate governance standard, CEO to board chair, or CEO designate if there's a conflict or some other reason why the CEO can't communicate to board chair or uh, vice chair if the board chair has a conflict. So that's generally how it goes as you kind of go to the top of the uppermost management side to the top of the uppermost board side. They typically will liaison in the, in the absence of guidance to the contrary or regulatory requirement or legal requirement to the contrary. I mentioned briefly charters, and I'll just touch upon this now. When you have a committee, uh, whether it's a board committee or an executive committee or some other like data privacy committee at a company, you should often be thinking about a charter. And so a charter will help describe what is the rules of engagement for this committee look like? What is the scope of their work? What reporting requirements do they have? Very similar to a policy in terms of uh, approach to reason. Um, you know, how does it function internally? What is its leadership structure? Who's to communicate with whom? What does its composition of membership look like? And what is within its scope? And so those are those also help guide some of those communications but, and help describe who communicates when to whom and when are you supposed to raise that flag as opposed to just let management deal with the day-to-day -day operation. Well, and I think in my experience, and this is more of a human nature thing, right, is if I'm the CEO, it's like, well, I, I haven't resolved this issue yet, so I don't want to alert them, and then I have no answers, and I think you know, my, my thought, but I'm not, I'm not, um, you know, a governance, uh, expert, so to speak as you are, but I mean, I think erring on the side of communication, even if an event just happened and you don't have all the answers yet, I think sitting on information is probably, even though that can sometimes be human nature, I've seen that sort of end up biting people, uh, on the back end because, Again, I don't think the board's going to ask for you to have everything figured out if this just happened, but I think that the courtesy of knowing, and again, I, I think that so much of what's happening for hospices right now is in the compliance, and you use the term audit, and we think of you're using this financial sort of audit, and and we in in hospice in particular have a lot of program integrity type audits that go on, and and they can um, result in very large dollar figures. Obviously, there could also be uh, you know concerns about fraud and abuse or something like that. But I mean, those can be very significant events for a company because the dollar figures that that can come out of those audits can be very devastating to an organization. And so um, I think in this is going to, we're going to get into what's good board training, but I think that, that the more educated your board is, and when you call them with stuff, they're not going to freak out and be like, oh my God, what's going on? If they sort of understand like, okay, yeah, but I've heard about these audits, we're getting one. And then they sort of have a grounding in some of this stuff. So I think that, that 
that probably erring on the side of communication and then if it's maybe a testament of how well you've educated your board if their response isn't I'm completely freaked out or I have no idea what you're talking about but instead like okay thanks for letting me know and then you know the response isn't to micromanage but maybe then set some set some type of schedule for you know when you're going to reach back out or what with the game plan or whatever but I, I don't know what your experience has been stephanie but that's that's been mine no I, I agree with everything you just said and, and that is that is typically the course when i typically experience um maybe a board disconnect or on a flow disconnect between management reporting and, and board response it's because when they haven't been trained correctly it is they haven't gotten the right information but often, you know, when and what you communicate is important critically, but also how you communicate. And I'm going to get into the means of communication, too. And I don't mean to be a lawyer, <laughs> but on this, but there's a reason why there's privileges and confidences and sensitivities involved. And so for me, I always advise my folks as a general measure, unless there's some regulatory reason, which I'm not aware of one with what I'm about to say or a legal reason, um, otherwise, if there is something super sensitive going on that you just learned about as a CEO, sometime, or let's say someone else in the, in the C-suite learns about it, not necessarily the CEO, sometimes people want to have in, in less mature versions of management or people who haven't been trained a lot, they may say, oh gosh, I don't want to alert this to the board yet until I, I know more information or I don't want to tell the regulator until I have more information. Um, and then they can wait too long. And then sometimes there is the need to, oh my gosh, you know, chicken little sky is falling. I need to alert everyone immediately. And they send out these email blasts and there's no lawyer involved. And they just, now we have a lot of uh, speculation and overly sensitive information being communicated or disseminated in a way that's harmful to the company. Because you may not know a lot in that first phone call or could be incorrect or could be bad information, whatever. So as a general rule, I like to balance and say, look, and I'll use a, a hypothetical that I kind of use a lot in training. Bad things happen on Friday afternoons at 4 37. <laughs> and it's always gonna be a holiday weekend. So just keeping that in mind, I always have to, you know, watch every Friday, just you know, get ready and, and put my seatbelt on. So Friday afternoons are when bad things are gonna happen. It's always gonna happen on a holiday weekend as people are leaving for their for their long weekends. But all that being said, you know, it's happened to me in my life where I've had something reported to me late afternoon on Friday, or there was an emergency issue with the late on a Friday, but the information is so loose that I'm like, uh, I don't want to call the board chair just yet. Um, and so why don't we do this? Why don't we gather a little bit more information? So I kind of make a litmus. What at a minimum do I need to go out and gather to get initial concrete information to make my reporting appropriate and effective, but it won't take very long. And let's say it's going to take me a week to gather that information. No, I'm going to go ahead and call the board chair or suggest that the CEO call the board chair and say, look, we just got alerted to this. We have a game plan we're putting together. We wanted to alert you before the holiday weekend got underway. These are our next steps. Anticipate hearing from us by this date and time. If we need you in the meantime, we'll call you. At this point, you know, no further reporting is required to other members of management or the board, or it is required. And let's schedule a call at your convenience, Mr. Chair or Ms. Chair, you know, early next week. There's, it's all that control. And where mature boards or mature relationships are found, they're going to say, okay, let me know if you need help. Report back to me as soon as you know more. And, and that's healthy. Maybe they'll ask a few questions that could be helpful. But that's an appropriate thing when you don't know what to do 
just think through, okay, can I gather enough to make it a little bit more of a, a salient report? Or given the holiday weekend, given that it's 4.37 p.m., you know, do I go ahead and make that call now? Let them know it is highly preliminary. Depending upon what the thing is that you're dealing with, sometimes you wait and sometimes you don't. And it really just depends on the subject matter, any kind of requirements you have internally, the relationship and the expectation that you have. As I mentioned earlier, sometimes my entities, a lot of my client entities are regulated, heavily regulated. So that means that they have a banking regulator that they have to report to or OSHA or something like that, where they don't want to hear your reason for waiting to tell them what's going on. You may have a duty to call them immediately or sooner rather than later, even before you have all those facts, which can be uncomfortable. So you want to make sure you have someone really equipped to handle that call. And for me, I call it banking my credibility. Um, especially if I have a designated liaison at OSHA or a designated liaison at a banking regulator or a designated representative that I deal with, with whoever it is. Um, I like to establish credibility and give them, I don't know a lot of information. Here's what I've got. It's a holiday weekend. I wanted to put this on your radar. We are handling in accordance with protocol. Um, I will check back in with you early next week. And depending upon what it is and who the regulator is and what, what I might have to report, I have found that goes so far in helping my client, never revealing privilege, of course, or confidences, but do letting them know that you're aware, you're on it, you've got assigned appropriate members of, of management of the board. Yes, you've notified the right people. Yes, here are the next steps you plan on taking, and you'll check back in as appropriate. Whether it's an accident or an incident, a lawsuit, a PR issue, whatever it happens to be, um, it's always prudent to gauge the subject. And I always tell people as part of care, loyalty, and obedience, when you don't know what to do, you know, get good counsel, you know, get, get good counsel and get a good rapport um, and make sure you, you do the right steps. And, and part of that critical steps, frankly, is hopefully getting a good training uh, of your board and of your management to know how to function best through these circumstances to set expectations on both sides of the fence, whether it's board and management and making sure you function in accordance with those. So, and and I think that, um, you know, hospice is, is sort of going through a rebirth or um, sort of into the next generation. And so I think that, that if we're at hospice 2.0 or 3.0, I mean, I think that our boards need to come along with us. So back in 1983, when the Medicare hospice benefit was first created, I mean, the people on your boards are, you know, this these really vested community members or volunteers. I mean, you're, oftentimes your medical director was a volunteer. Maybe all of your, your, your people working there were volunteers. And so that was... That was the outgrowth of a lot of um, of the hospices that are still uh, very, very vibrant today. But then how has your board evolved as you've evolved, right? So a number of our, you know, hospices that we work with throughout the country, I mean, they've grown dramatically in size. And so then, you know, maybe the, the skills you need on your board are different and, and whatnot. But I think, you know, and this is sort of my area of focus is, is I, I just think the government enforcement and scrutiny um, and all of the these audits and whatnot, there's just there's just different things that boards need to know. And so I want to talk a little bit about, 
you know, what makes a good board member? And, and because we have people who are tremendous volunteers and do tons and tons of things um, for our organization and care deeply about it. And, and maybe they've been involved for a very long time. And, um, and, I think a lot of our nonprofit boards are oftentimes very, very large. Um, and how do you, you know, when we're talking about we're in the next generation, like how do you deal with that? And, how, you know, and and I think sometimes people think about governance and it's like this thing that it's like, well, it doesn't really matter. Governance is in a substantive area, so you don't really think about it. But, but and this is why I wanted to have this conversation with you today, um, um, Stephanie is, I think we have to care about it because I think that the government and the same people who are enforcing various regulatory and payment um, obligations on us are expecting our boards to function in a certain way and have certain knowledge and be informed of certain things that if our, our board hasn't gone to the next generation, that that there could be challenges with with um our ability to demonstrate that we're really meeting what is expected of not just again our employees but our boards as well. So, so I, I guess in in your experience, what I've explained and the story of you know the people who are deeply ingrained in the mission versus but but here we are iterations from then. Like, how do you deal with that sort of practically? What's a, you know, who is a good board member? What should their skills be? How big should your board be? Can you give me some insights into, you know, what you see to be, um, you know, signs of, of a good uh, board uh Sure. There's there's a lot in what you said, and I think it, all of it is, is right, and all of it are, are great thinking points and things that companies and boards, when I say companies, I mean their boards at the top of that triangle, they should be thinking through. Um, talking about what makes a good board, board member, that can vary depending upon the company and what the goals are of the company. Um, if the company doesn't know what its goals are, uh, that's different. Obviously, you have to form and say, what do we look like today? Where, we, where do we want to look like in three to five years? Typically, succession planning and strategic business planning is going to be looking at a three to five year optic um, and roadmap. And it may change over time as part of that three to five year journey, but it can change. But the reason why I say that the episode of answering that question is I appreciate it, is that who you are versus where you want to be, how do you get there? And how is your board going to best guide you and be a resource? Um, and I, I don't say this disparagingly. But boards who are in charge of, of running an organization, toe at the top, you know, responsible for policy direction, they really should be qualified for the position. Um, and what I mean by that is it's not a country club. It's it's not an opportunity for you to gather all your friends. As, as awesome as they may be, it's not an opportunity for you to gather and surround yourself with persons of like minds. It really is an opportunity to make sure if you know your company, what it does, if you know where it wants to go, then you're going to make sure you get qualified folks or people who are diverse in their opinions and, and views and expertise levels and background um, and making sure you satisfy, a lot of times there are regulatory requirements for who can serve, making sure, of course, you satisfy those legal and regulatory requirements or any governing document requirements that you may have. And a lot of times even for a charter may require that they look a certain way. But assuming you want to make sure, you know, that you satisfy that guidance, you want to make sure you have the most qualified folks in those positions to help challenge you. And 
it's healthy and, and it's a good idea to have persons with diverse backgrounds and experience levels who are still qualified within that realm that you're in because they can challenge you. It's that tension. They can challenge you. They can make you think critically differently. They can help get to that next level. Like some companies want to have a lawyer on board, make sure you consider any laws. Some companies want to make sure that they have maybe a member of a certain demographic, like between 25 and 35, who fit within that skill set to give sort of that perspective. Sometimes they want to have someone with a wealth of board experience in that area or who was maybe a previous, previous management member in that area is maybe now retired to come bring in sort of that historic perspective and to give kind of the history of how we got where we are in this industry or this thing that we're talking about. So it, it, it could be all sorts of good things, but what they do need to do is be aware. And so where I've, where I've often found it kind of interesting is you bring these people on a board, whether by election or appointment or what have you, they bring these people onto the board, but you don't tell them what that's going to look like, what their life on the board is going to look like. You need to tell them what their fiduciary duties are to me in the selection process before they take that seat at the table. So here's what a care and loyalty and obedience look like. Here's what it's going to require of you. Here's what it is not. Um, here's how the conflicts of interest, and sometimes conflicts of interest can screen you out for being an appropriate director. Because if you know everybody on the board, everyone in management, if this is an issue where every single connection you have is going to be a connection the company is going to have, you may be recused from everything, meaning you can't functionally vote because you're not disinterested. You may be a great consultant to them when they need that consulting expertise. But as a board member, it may not be a perfect fit for you. So making sure you're appropriately disinterested, appropriately qualified, aware of what your meeting schedules are going to look like, your training schedule is going to look like, the logistics are there. You can get to those meetings. You can actively participate. You have room in your schedule, you know, to, to be a, a, a contributing, a successful contributing member, effective contributing member of that board are all critical looking at their schedules. Do they even have time to take on this commitment and what's it going to look like, especially when life happens? It's not an excuse and no one... A, a, a potential plaintiff or a regulator, no one's going to care how busy you were and you weren't able to take that phone call on that Friday afternoon when the phone call needed to be taken. So all of those things come into play. I think sometimes if you don't know where to start, again, mapping out the future of your company, whether you're the edge set and where you want it to go is a good idea. Uh, once your board is in place, doing self-assessments self of the board, meaning the board that analyzes itself, its own individual uh, performance, as well as the board's performance, as well as the committee's performance, on like a discrete or confidential anonymous basis once a year to be tabulated and summarized and then uh, discussed as part of a facilitated discussion is really healthy because that helps adjust your strategic business plan uh, for the next three to five years or rolling three to five years. Uh, it should go into director qualifications, who needs to be on the board next, making sure you have the right term limits, um, if any, on your board. What, what does each term look like? Making sure it's appropriately long so you can succeed in that role here, make the training investment make sense and all of that, but not so long that it becomes sort of an identity for that board member. When they start to become their identity is I'm always the chair or I'm always the, you know, the member of this board. Sometimes it becomes less about loyalty, that loyalty fiduciary duty. That's more about their relationship and what they can do for that entity. Uh, it is nice to have new blood uh, on boards, depending upon what it is and what the company's roles are and what its goals are. It also kind of is part of what you were talking about. There were several things about how to be an effective board member. Again, reading the reports management gets to you, um, being aware of what's going on in that industry with that particular organization or critical. For some uh, industries and for some types of clients, 
there are common resources that people should be checking out and aware of. So my, I'm going to take the banking industry because it's, it's, it's uh, pretty well structured in many respects, even though there are various forms of banks and various forms of financial institutions. There are a lot of publications. So with some clients, I will let them know, look, if you are a member of this type of banking industry, you want to sign up to get reports from this entity or from this organizational leader or from this uh, publicist or whatever it happens to be. And make sure management is giving you summaries of those critical updates going on in that industry on a periodic basis, whether you meet monthly or meet quarterly. You know, making sure you have space in your agenda for updates in the industry, trends in the industry. Um, what proposed legislation is coming down the pipe that could impact you? How do you stay ahead of those that proposed legislation? Do you want to comment on that proposed legislation? Um, you know, why or why not? So I was in notifying and making sure your board's aware of industry trends, making sure there's a discussion place on every board agenda for strategic business thinking, uh, making sure you have appropriate. This goes back to an earlier question, Meg, that you raised um, that I didn't address uh, in this way. Making sure you have executive session at every single board meeting with the CEO and without the CEO um, so that the board has time in its own of course, to analyze things um, thoughtfully, objectively, and prudently um, without influence or independence of, or excuse me, without influence of management. Um, and so I think all of those things come into play. And why do I mention these things? Because whether you're getting paid to be in a board position or you, it's, a, it's an unpaid uh, position, either way, you have the same fiduciary duties we started out with, which I know we haven't gone into too much depth. But board members, as well as officers, can be held personally liable for certain kinds of actions that may occur, personal, in their individual name, as well as maybe the company, depending upon what the issue may be. So one of the ways that a board member, as well as an executive member, can reduce or insulate or minimize their liability exposure, of course, is acting in accordance with their governing documents, their policies. If they can show they have them in place um, and they act in accordance with them, that checks some boxes on defenses that they might be able to assert. But even if the outcome was wrong, even if something bad happened, if they followed a proper verified process all the way through, it does help show duty of care and duty of obedience were in place. Let's not give up those wins because we need them. And that's why those policies and procedures are in place. The other thing that they want to do is show that they acted on an informed basis in good faith, that whatever action they're, they're voting on or taking uh, was honestly made in the best interest of the company based upon the circumstances pre uh, presented. And if they do that, they might have the presumption of what's called a business judgment rule, which is when it's available, and it's not available for all causes of action, but when it's available, it helps create a presumption that even if the outcome again was wrong, that as long as they guarantee the process was in place and they made informed decisions, then it's healthy. The last point of your question I want to echo there's a lot of uh, think tank logic that people will say, you know, we have such a great board. Everybody always votes unanimously. We stay in that <laughs> room until we all, we all agree. And like, that's, that's great. You have a lot of like minds, but I'm going to challenge you a little bit on that. It's nice. You know, sometimes there are no brainers that everyone can agree on and that's wonderful. But there are times where, you know, it's not great for everyone to agree. Either one, that means you might need to have a more diverse board to bring in some more critical thoughts. But number two, it may mean that a director uh, is not exercising their independent judgment, which is required as a director to do. It doesn't mean you have to you know, disagree without being disagreeable. You should disagree and be agreeable in doing so. Do it appropriately. But you can challenge 
And so boards should have appropriate time for discussion. And that may mean people see things differently. And oftentimes when people bring forth their different viewpoints, we come up with the best solution with all angles, you know, carefully analyzed and appropriately documented in the minutes. And if the vote on that hypothetical five-member board we were talking about is 3-2 or 4-1, great. You know, that's great because that means it wasn't just an abdication. People weren't just blindly deferring to their co-board members. They were thinking for themselves. And that's exactly what is required and expected. You know, you should act appropriately and obviously communicate effectively in a responsible way. But you should exercise your own brain um, when you're a board member and make sure you're informed before you cast that vote. So all of those things help make good members and screening them, getting them right in and making sure that they're effective contributors once they're on that board. Yeah, those are are really important things. and, And I think we've all probably been on those boards as you know, we we've all we we all have had good board experiences and bad as members ourselves, and just where everything's an information dump that wow. that sometimes you feel like you're not really contributing anything. It's just for me to sign off, and so I think that that what you said is really important. Of um, you know what is happening at those board meetings, and and, and again. Boards are not making day-to-day business decisions, but there are things, and this goes looping back to how do you prove I'm meeting my fiduciary duty? If we never vote on anything and I never have any discussions, just like, here's your board packet, you reviewed it, right? And then like... I'm hearing all this information and I went to every meeting, but I never had to do anything because I've been on those boards. And it's like, in addition to, I think as a board member, you don't really feel like you're making a meaningful contribution. You're also, you know, are you meeting your fiduciary duty really? And like, I think this is really hard. And, and sometimes I think from a root cause standpoint, it comes from, in in my experience, some of our our clients have really large boards, and that can be hard to manage. And so I think, and when we we sort of finish up here and talk about sort of what are like on your top five list of of things to do to to show you're carrying out your fiduciary duty and what you know policies and things like that. But like, there can be roles for people to be on a subcommittee of a board that's not a board member themselves. Cause I think that let's just say you have a board that's 25 people while, and you make a decision to cut this board in half of size. Like, how do you do that? I mean, that could be really controversial, but like there's, many ways that you can involve community members in your organization in a very meaningful way. And like you said, right-sizing to what are the skills and gifts of these these folks and how can they best contribute to the organization? Because I think that, that when you're talking about, um, you know, training people about their fiduciary duty and personal liability, I'm sure everyone listening is like, I don't want to, you know, get into that. I'm going to scare people off. I need people to, to serve. But I mean, I, I do think that especially in healthcare, which is heavily regulated, they need to have a grounding in some of this compliance related type things and you want your compliance officer to be reporting to the board so you know when something 
quote, bad happens. This is not the first time they're hearing about (laughs) that this is a thing. And like, oh, we must be so bad. The government's doing this. And it's like, no, no. If you've educated them well, they understand that hospices all across the country get these kinds of audits. And just because this is happening to you does not mean that you did anything wrong. This is like, it's not that it's not important, but it's not as though you're getting singled out, so to speak. And so it, creating that context, I think that's what education and training is, is creating the context so then they can be have that grounding when they're getting information and then be able to ask sort of appropriate questions. And then the worst thing, and obviously my involvement with boards is oftentimes when something very bad has happened or some type of crisis. And if you're having to educate and do that context at the time this bad thing is happening, that's having to do that education and then navigate, you know, what should be done at this particular situation. Not only does that become more long-winded, but I also think it can be harder to get to where you need to to go. Um, And it sort of shows that maybe are they really carrying out their fiduciary duty if they never knew what any of the stuff was and the first time something bad is happening, you know, that's when they're learning about, oh, you know, these these program integrity audits happen. And so so anyway, I just when you're when you're talking, it just made me think of we want we desperately want people to serve on our board, so we don't want to to sort of do this education. And I'm just thinking that might be a root cause for maybe why some of this doesn't get done on the front end. But you probably have better insights than I do on that. No, I think there's a lot of information in there, Meg, and, and you're right on all of it. And so right size on your board is critical. The needs will vary depending upon. I'll give a, a quick hypothetical or a quick explanation. I was asked to be in a board a long time ago, a long, long time ago in my career. And when I first, you know, before the meeting, I said, can I have an agenda for the year? And I said, you know, what is our goal and our purpose before I apply for and we have approved the board? Um, what is our mission? What is our what is our direction? What are we supposed to be voting on? How do we meet? And I went through all of these things. And, you know, I, it's like they've never been asked these questions before. And so <laughs> I said, you know what? Is it, you're not really going to be doing anything. I'm like, well, no, yeah. a, board, a board is formed to do something. You know, if I'm on a board, I'm being asked to be, and I have fiduciary duties regardless. I wasn't getting paid on the deal. And I said, you know, will there be an agenda? Can I see the agenda prior to the meeting? So I, I will give it to you at the meeting. I said, but then I can't prepare. And so, <laughs> <laughs> it's really kind of interesting. So we ended up kind of back ending, and this thing had been in place for a really long time, and, and everyone enjoyed it. It was kind of a feel-good sort of board, you know, for this particular group. And it really, it was a nice place for people to collaborate, but it wasn't set up like a board. It was really kind of interesting. So I've kind of learned that that's, that, that free fall is never a good thing to your point, keeping people informed. The bigger a board is, the more likely in my experience, it has people in hide, um, you know, behind the decision. So I would say with any company, the size can vary. There are books out there that say you should have this automatic three to five group. That's not right. That's three to five, that may be horribly inadequate depending upon the company's goals, its regulatory requirements, what it needs to function. But you should have a good functioning board. And sometimes there are so many things for a board to tackle. Um, You know, it can be information overload and maybe too much for a board to do. 
So think of a board in, in, in your mind like you would the company, the management side. So management has an org chart where you have the CEO at the top and the people below, as we were talking about earlier. The board is the same way. So you have the board being the top and the board chair being on top of that. And then below the board, you're going to have these various committees potentially being set up to, to handle the, the, the more specialized issues that that particular board may need to deal with. Um, so like, for example, I mentioned earlier audit. So a lot of regulated entities are required to have an audit committee um, that helps set the scope of the audit, helps make sure that they retain the appropriate uh, audit persons, remind them to go back to their management and to make sure it has the right reports on the audits, that they're reviewed on at least a quarterly basis, you know, and they have the right meetings and retain the right persons to give that insight, and then they report it to the board. So the audit committee is the specialized folks that have the right people with the right composition, with the right skill sets to function on the audit committee. And then the audit chair, once the audit committee's met on the specialized issues or set of issues or financials, they report that to the board. Instead of the board having to read, you know, let's say this alphabetical 25-member board has to read all this audit stuff that may be hundreds and hundreds of pages every quarter, it's now three or four people or five people, you know, uh, digesting it, making really smart, informed decisions, and then reporting up, you know, in a 15-minute or 10-minute report, saving hours upon hours, um, you know, of the board's time, but letting them get what the board needs to get from that specialized review by the audit committee. Same thing for compensation committee that you may have for the CEO or governance committee, uh, kind of to your compliance point earlier. There's often a governance committee to make sure that the board has the right policy schedule, the right the board has the right insurance coverages, and this the company has the right insurance coverages to make sure that they've got the right charters. And so the governance committee will sometimes do a pass depending on how the company board set up. We'll do a pass on a lot of these things, make sure that they satisfy the law, get with the lawyer to make sure it's drafted correctly. And then once all that stuff is looked at by the committee, then they'll present, you know, consistent with the charter and maybe the policies that those particular issues to the board. So the board can accomplish a lot in, you know, at the elephant uh, and chew away at that elephant by breaking up into committees to handle appropriate size subject matters for that company so that the board as a collective can accomplish all of the goals, but without having to spend hundreds of hours that no one individual has on top of their day job, you know, to serve on a board. So choose your committee appointments wisely. Make sure you have the right committees. Make sure that those committees get trained and they get self-assessments too. All of that is incredibly man manageable as long as you kind of know your path forward and what you need to have your expertise in. So that's kind of some of the ways that I think that we have a lot of really good board management and functionality. Um, and then they are aware of what these things are. They are, and again, back to the industry trends, each committee can kind of be aware of the industry trends affecting that thing. Risk committees are incredibly important to have. And there's lots of really good published literature on the formation and use of a risk committee. And I think almost all companies these days should either have a risk committee or someone who performs a function like that to be responsible for risk because risk is prospective looking. It's anticipating risk coming down the pipe and trying to prepare for those in advance. Audit looks backwards. What happened in the past and did we address that correctly? And then what do we need to adjust going forward? And so audit and risk play this nice um, symbiotic relationship with one another being retrospective and, and prospective and then making sure you've got risk covered on both sides of the fence in that regard. Um, did you do everything you said you were going to do? Did you function correctly forward? And did management do what it was supposed to do? So frankly, a lot of these audits and reports and things like that are, that are needed or compliance reviews 
are critical for boards and management to have to make sure that is everyone functioning in the right space that they should be functioning in? Are we getting all the right data we should be getting? But a lot of that too, every charter should have um, the opportunity for that particular committee to retain professionals or to retain advisors or to connect with advisors to make sure they're getting the right inputs. And not every committee may need a lawyer, not every committee may need a consultant, but when they do, they should have the right to get the resources they need to function correctly to advise. And again, all companies are different. The needs of a company board are going to be different. You know, a two-person, you know, company is not going to have all the needs for all of these things, but they'll have to have their own equivalent of these things as opposed to a two or $20,000 or excuse me, 20,000 person uh, company uh, with a board commensurate for the size and risk of that company and what its goals are. So all that to say, look at your company, look at its size, look at its risk areas, look at what it needs to be regulatorily and practically to function and accomplish its mission and purpose. Does it have the right people in the right spots? And then breaking up all of the things that need to be accomplished through committees, and through persons being assigned to the right spots with the right term limits, all of those help contribute to a really good, healthy function of that company, the board, and at the management level. Yeah, I, there's there's so much there, and I think we'll do a poll because I'm we're going to try out these LinkedIn polls when we we post this on LinkedIn to see if we there'd be interest in in doing another sort of podcast series on this because I I just really think that hospices are in a new stage of their life. And I think these questions are need to probably be front and center. And and so I think they're really worthy of exploration because I feel like I could ask you like 10 follow-up questions um, on this, but but you have to get back to your day job and <laughs> um, talking to me all day. But, but I, I think this is incredibly helpful. And I think that what you said about substantive experts and consultants, I mean, that's something that the the um, federal OIG has identified and, and will include links to um, the, the OIG has released a couple of reports about sort of expectations and the role of boards for healthcare companies. Um, but they talk about that that boards in like, for example, the area of compliance might need substantive experts to, to get them up to speed about the issues at hand. And those things are, are good things to do. And, and again, why does this matter? Because I think ultimately, as you said, and you know, this is something no one likes to talk about, but um, from what I've heard in talking to various insurers, I mean, there does seem to be a rise of claims against board members and boards, and are you really carrying out your fiduciary duty? And so, if you ever had to prove that up, what are the dots you would try to connect to demonstrate that you're meeting that? And so I, I'm sure people always think lawyers, you know, we're all in the weeds and, you know, all these policies and procedures and blah, blah, blah. I mean, that aren't they just pieces of paper? But I mean, I think that they are really sort of the living, breathing testament of you coming back full circle here to meeting your fiduciary obligations. Like, what would you, what would you 
provide to demonstrate that? Because it's not just like, oh, we had 10 board meetings this year. Like that's not going to cut like they met the fiduciary duty. And so what are the things that you could say if you had to prove that up? And and maybe we end there is, you know, in brief, like if you had you serve your top five list of if you are listening to this podcast as an executive, like what are the five things I'd want to go look at and and see, would that be like, what does our charter look like? Or what was the last time that was looked at? Like, what are some things that would be on your short list to, as a takeaway from, from this podcast? Sure, I will say it this way. And, and so whenever I have to sometimes get called in when, when companies get in trouble, I go in and I do an investigation or review to find out what happened and how we got there. The first few things that I always grab is where, where my first immediate thought was when you asked that question just now is, you know, what does their board schedule look like? What are their list of policies? Can I grab their minutes from the last three years worth of their board meetings? And that doesn't take very long for someone like me to look at. Um, what does their training schedule look like? And in what required reports did they have and did they have those and what are their charters look like? So when I grab those things and plus make sure you've got your organizational chart that's five and a half or six, that's where I'm going to start. Those are your core. So you've got your org chart and in your charters, you've got your policies, you've got procedures, you've got your minutes and your training and board schedules. Those things are the key places to start because those will evidence not just window dressing, because I don't like to do anything for window dressing. I never draft anything for a client just that they have, because frankly, it's an exhibit against them if they don't, if they yeah. can comply with it. You want to draft something that matches your client's needs, it satisfies the law or their mission or their purpose, and gets them to the next level. To have, like you said, a testament, I, I was thinking the word playbook when you say it. If you've got at least these things to start with, you're starting out a leg ahead. If you don't have those things, then maybe that might show why there might have been a hiccup or why you might maybe not be max, uh, working with maximum efficiency or effectiveness as a board or as a company. If you get those things in place, they will help you know how to best function. They will reduce the hiccups in your balance in your book. Life happens at 4.37 on Friday afternoon. If you have these things in place, they don't have to disrupt your business operation and will let you function as best you can when the good time turns to bad. Yeah, no, that's super, that's super helpful. And, and what, as I said, it started this, you know, rich conversation and, and um, you're just a, a wealth of knowledge. And so um, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to share your wisdom with our listeners. And um, it's always fun to, to, to talk to you and, and um, hear, hear your war story, so to speak, which um, I'll have to take you out for a drink to, to, to get that. That's not for a podcast, but, but um <laughs> But I, again, I really appreciate your time. And this has been a really interesting conversation. And again, I, I think our, our listeners will really appreciate it as well. So, so thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. I hope it's helpful.